0: Hi, Doug Hooley here. This is episode number six in the series based on the first book I wrote a few years ago called Watch. It's based on the talk Jesus gave to his disciples regarding his return to this earth and the end of this age. Before I get started, I'd like to invite you to send me any questions you might have regarding what I'm talking about on the podcast. Send it to my email address, which is doug at Doughooley.com. Doug is d-o-u-g at doughooley.com, com. Doug at DougHooley.com. I may answer your question on future podcasts, or I might just write you back. Either way, I'll try to answer your question the best I can. If you have access to Facebook, you can also go on to the Doug Hooley Ministries page and leave a question or comment there. Then everybody else can benefit from it. The best way to make sure you're staying caught up on episodes is to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform or to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter account address is the at sign Doug H Ministries, no spaces in there. Uh, The Doug is capitalized, H is capitalized, and Ministries, M is capitalized. You can also send me an email to get on my email list. We try to send out an email whenever we release something new. Uh, the we being either myself or my wife Angela. Okay, so Jesus starts off his teaching on the Mount of Olives not with a list of things that will be uniquely associated with his coming, but with a short message about how some situations and events have always occurred, which people tend to look at as signs. People interpret these signs to mean that something big is about to occur. Jesus is making the point here that although many will associate those situations and events with the end of the age, those who are truly watching for his return should be careful not to make that mistake. The things Jesus is warning about that do not signal the end of the age have all been occurring on a regular basis since the time that Jesus gave the warning. In fact, all of them have been occurring ever since the beginning of history. Jesus will finish the list by saying, quote, "...see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet." Unquote. How often have you heard modern-day prophecy teachers attempting to make a case that the return of Jesus is imminent because of natural phenomenon taking place? Things such as earthquakes in various places, and other catastrophic yet natural phenomenon. If you've been around a while, you've read and heard this many times. If you haven't, a quick search on the internet will verify this is true. According to the number of Google hits I got when I typed in end times earthquakes, there are literally thousands of examples of people saying that this present day earthquakes indicate that we're now living in the last days. I've sometimes referred to these kinds of phenomenons as soft signs. Things that the Bible says will be occurring during the end of the age, but history has recorded the same things have occurred many times since the prophecies were given. There are several passages of Scripture in the New Testament alone that speak of these signs. For example, in Second Timothy chapter 3 we read, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You see in this passage there's a list of many negative, sinful characteristics of different people that will be in existence during what the text calls the last days. I think any one of us could look closely at the list and check off every single one of these characteristics being easily identifiable today. The problem is, every generation that's occurred since Paul wrote this letter to Timothy could check off the same list having occurred in their own day. The intensities may vary, but measuring these characteristics is very subjective, and when we don't consider what's occurred in history, each generation, if they use a list like this as an indication that the end is near, will think that it is their own generation that is living in the last days. This has been the case throughout church history. In the last 2,000 years, it's been common for people to use passages of scripture like this as an indicator that the end of the age and the return of Jesus is near and it clearly was not here's another one second timothy chapter 4 verses 3 to 5 for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. First notice that uh, that one doesn't even say in the last days. It says, for the time is coming. Well, this is another scripture that's commonly associated with the last days, and rightfully so. No doubt, just like today, people in the future who call themselves Christians and people who will be alive at the return of Jesus will not listen to sound teaching but should we look at such things as a sign that the return of Jesus is imminent? No. That is a mistake. It's the same mistake that Jesus starts off his warning with. I'll be talking about this again because it's really important to understand. These kinds of passages get misused all the time, every day, especially by those who are sensationalists. When we look at these kind of things as signs— those sensationalists truthfully can say, quote, prophecies are being fulfilled every day. Surely the return of Jesus is near, unquote. I began to not even refer to such things as soft signs. Now, I might slip on that every now and then. But I believe such things are merely characteristics or like an atmosphere that will be in existence when the end finally does draw near. But they are not unique characteristics. They've been in existence in different levels of intensities since before, during, and after the time of Jesus. I do believe these characteristics will be amplified during the last days, but we can have no idea how much. These types of things are just too subjective and relative. So, here we go. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were walking away from the temple when Jesus prophesied that not one stone of the temple complex would be left on another. Then that evening, as they were sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples asked Jesus some questions that I break down into four parts. First, when will these things happen? Second, what will be the sign that these things are about to happen? Third, what will be the sign of your coming and presence back on the earth? And finally, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus then started his answer by saying, Watch out, that no one will deceive you. And that leads us up to where we're starting today. Now, the following is my translation of Scripture. I encourage you to follow along with your own translation. We're starting with the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. The Mark chapter 13 verse 6 account goes like this, For many will come in my name saying that, I am, and shall deceive many. You will notice there that um, I translate it as I am, and your version probably says, I am Christ, or I am the Christ. Well, the words the Christ or Christ are simply added in. They are just not in the original documents that uh, translators translate from. It's something they just assume should be there. So anyway, that's why I didn't include it. Nor did I include it in uh, the Luke translation, which uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 8, the second half of it, says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am, and the time is close at hand. Do not follow them. In the three separate gospel accounts that I just read, Jesus is specifically warning about a group of people that will or have come in his name, maybe even declaring that they are the Christ or Messiah. The Gospel of Luke adds a second warning regarding these people who come in the name of Jesus. Quote, And will say the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Unquote. The time, which is at hand, is the framework of the end of the age. This statement in Luke makes sense in context of the question that Jesus is answering. I'm sure Jesus desires his followers to be on guard for all types of spiritual deception. However, given the context and the extra statement made in the Gospel of Luke, it makes sense that Jesus is specifically telling his followers to watch out for deception about the end of the age and the second coming. In reference to the deceivers who will come, the most conservative approach to this scripture is to say that Jesus is referring to only those false messiahs that say they are actually Jesus. So, paraphrasing Jesus using this interpretation, it goes something like this, watch out, For many in the future will say they are actually me, and through deception with many people, they'll get away with it. Well, surprisingly, Wikipedia lists 32 different individuals since the 18th century that either themselves or their followers have claimed to actually be Jesus. They claim to have either been reincarnated as another person who possesses Jesus' spirit and they're incarnated again as Jesus himself, or that they are Jesus having returned via the second coming. Although 32 false messiahs, and counting, might qualify for many coming in the name of Jesus, it's likely there have been undocumented occurrences of this over the centuries also. This group of fake Jesuses has drawn many followers, and they were all deceived. Well, a broader interpretation of this scripture would be those claiming to be the Messiah, but not necessarily Jesus himself. Well, Wikipedia lists 23 false Jewish messiahs, 34 Christian messiahs, 7 Muslim, and 9 other messiah claimants, spanning the period from 4 BC to 1994 AD. That list totals 73 different false messiahs. Some of them are still living and deceiving today. A third alternative interpretation would be that Jesus is referring to many who would come in his name. These individuals would claim to have the same authority as Jesus and lead many astray. This, by far, is a much larger group. Let me tell you why. I'll leave this for you to decide for yourself if Jesus' words apply in the following cases or not. As for me, I've determined that I need to be on guard and watchful of anyone who comes speaking with authority in the name of Jesus. Let me tell you why I think that. There was a guy named Ignatius. He was from Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. He was a bishop at the, of the Church of Antioch sometime during the early 2nd century A.D. Ignatius wrote seven letters as he traveled to Rome to be executed. That was around 110 to 115, somewhere in there. It's said that Ignatius knew the Apostle John you know, personally and was perhaps even taught by him. One of Ignatius's letters contains probably the earliest documentation of the concept of a regular man standing in the place of, and having the authority of, God on earth. This position in the Roman Catholic Church, held by the Pope, came to be known as the Vicar of Christ. The Epistle of Ignatius to the Magnesians, in its sixth chapter, says, quote, I exhort you to study to do all things with a divine harmony while your bishop presides in the place of God. Down through the centuries, the Roman Catholic Pope has claimed to hold the authority of Christ on earth with the power to forgive sins through the sacraments of confession. He also claims to have the ability to declare who's made it into heaven, and in days past, declare who should be put to death for heresy. During the Vatican Council of 1869, the question of the infallibility of the Pope was raised. The bishops ultimately voted whether or not the Pope could speak for God on July 18, 1869. The vote was 533 to 2 that the Pope is indeed infallible when he speaks what's called ex cathedra. According to author Nicholas Cheatham in his book, Keepers of the Keys, speaking ex cathedra is defined as when one speaks with supreme apostolic authority concerning our faith or morals. Although well, the ruling of the Council of 1869 is still adhered to today in the Roman Catholic Church, when the Pope speaks regarding doctrine, he is speaking in the name of and in the place of Jesus Please understand I am not anti-Catholic. I'm convinced that God does not respect man-made denominational religious boundaries or labels. He looks at every individual's heart and is the one who does the calling and does the saving. I'm only saying that Jesus warned us to watch out for deception from people coming to us in His name and with His authority especially when they claim to be standing in the place of God. Many popes, 266 in fact as of the time of recording this podcast, have now done so. The Pope of the Roman Catholic Church is but one example of a formal religious system where a mortal man has been bestowed the authority of God. There have been and continue to be many Protestant and pseudo-Christian religions that engage in the same type of practice giving godlike authority to their leadership, calling them among other things, prophets or apostles. Now, this might come as a shock, but Muslims are also waiting for Jesus to return one day. According to Joel Richardson, the author of The Islamic Antichrist and The Mideast Beast, adherents to Islam believe that the Christians Jesus did not actually die and rise again, but was taken up into heaven by Allah prior to his death. That's kind of like what God did with Enoch and Elijah. Muslims also don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe him to be a prophet. They think one day Jesus, who they call Isa, will miraculously return and tell everybody the truth about what happened 2,000 years ago to compel everyone to follow the Islamic version of the Messiah. The Islamic Messiah is called the Mahdi. Given the things that Jesus warned of, this prediction of a person coming in his name is interesting, as are the predictions of the one they call the Mahdi. However, since what Muslims are waiting for is based on the writings of a false prophet, to give their predictions any credibility whatsoever would be failing to heed the very warning of Jesus. There is no reason to think that the Islamic prophecies have any more credibility than the quatrains of Nostradamus or a palm reader in the creepy little shop on the street. In other words, I am not studying Islamic prophecies as if they are an indication of future events, or looking for Islamic prophecies to come true. I do not seek to attempt to fit Islamic prophecies into the prophecies of the Holy Bible. That's just unnecessary. God gave his followers all the information they need within the Holy Bible. If it's in God's plan to include the events spoken of in Islamic prophecy as part of the deception, then Jesus has already in his instructors what to do with that. Don't be deceived or seduced, and don't follow after them. As for now, to study false prophecies, like contained in the Quran, or given by a false prophet, like Muhammad, in the name of a false god, like Allah, where I give them any credibility, authority, or likelihood of occurring, is to mistakenly follow after them. I don't want to do that. I grew up thinking that the third commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, meant that you can't cuss. Well, certainly cussing is not good, but to utter the words, God damn, meant that you were invoking God to damn or curse something that you had no right to damn or curse. Well, certainly that would qualify for taking the Lord's name in vain. But among the more reasonable everyday meanings of the third commandment is to simply not invoke the name of the Lord when you have no business doing so in any regards. Like saying, thus says the Lord, and then you give a false prophecy that's more based on what you ate for dinner rather than what the Holy Spirit is saying through you. Or when you're trying to give advice on God's behalf, when it's really only you and your own advice. Or like a young man telling his girlfriend, no, seriously, God wouldn't care that we're having sex before marriage because we're planning on getting married one day anyway. Well, the young man is not speaking on God's behalf. He's using God's name in vain. And then there are those who come in the name of Jesus, false messiahs and false teachers or prophets. They are using the name of the Lord in vain. We are to watch out for these guys. We just came through a period of time when there were many in the church giving prophecies in the name of Jesus regarding the outcome of the 2020 election. Thousands upon thousands of believers believed what these prophets had to say, and thousands have become disillusioned as their false prophecies did not come true. These are the very people Jesus was warning about. While on the topic, I need to take the opportunity to point out a common tactic of false prophets. And that is, they reinterpret their own false prophecy in order to say that it was not in error. This might be that the fulfillment is still in the future, or that it was fulfilled, just not in the way that they'd expected. Or, they may even say that it was fulfilled spiritually, but not physically anything but admit they were wrong well after jesus warns about deception and people coming falsely in his name he goes on this is from the book of matthew chapter 24 verses 6 to the first part of verse 7 you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see to it that you are not troubled for all this must take place but it is not yet the end for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The Mark 13, 7 to 8, the first part of 8 version goes, And when you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. It must be, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And finally, the Luke chapter 21, verses 9 to 10 version. But when you will hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified, for these things must first happen, but the end is not soon. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. So, here it is, Jesus' statement that these types of things are going to happen, but rather than indicate that it's the end of the age, they're only indicating that life on planet earth is proceeding as normal. Jesus points out that, like deception, wars, rumors of wars, and disturbances taking place around you does not mean it's the end of the world. Don't be troubled. Don't be terrified. These things will happen. The end is not yet. The end is not soon how many people interpreting prophecy today do you hear emphasizing these words of Jesus? If you or your loved ones are in the middle of a war, or what seems like a war, there's plenty to be alarmed about regarding you or your loved ones' safety and personal property. There's even much to be troubled about if the war only involves strangers and it was in a far-off land. When Jesus says not to be troubled or alarmed, we must again remember the context of the answer he's giving. He's saying, don't be alarmed because you think it's the end of the age simply because there is another war breaking out. It is not. War by itself does not mean that the end of the age is upon us. Deception by itself does also not equal the end of the age. It's almost incomprehensible how many wars there have been and how many people have died in all of human history because of wars. You might find it interesting to take a quick look at the casualties of wars list found in Wikipedia. These, which are sometimes unverified figures, include deaths of civilians from disease, famine, and atrocities caused by the war, as well as deaths of soldiers in battle. On the low end, what's only a partial list of 70 wars and goes back to only 756 AD, comes to over 255 million deaths. The high end estimate is closer to 400 million deaths associated with war over the last 1250 years. You would likely never guess this, but that's an astonishing average of over 204,000 to 314,000 people dying each year due to war-related causes. Is war a sign of the return of Christ? Archaeology and historical documentation agree and confirm the existence of war long before and ever since the first coming of Christ. Even the Holocaust and Hiroshima did not bring about the return of Jesus. Wars must take place, and they will definitely play a part in the end of the age, but by themselves they do not indicate that it's the end of the world. Do not look to wars alone as a sign of the end. Now let's talk about earthquakes and hunger and disease and pestilence. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 7b, the second part of verse 7 and 8, and there will be hunger and pestilence and earthquakes in places. All of this is the beginning of childbirth-like pain. The Mark 13 verse 8. Second half of verse 8 version goes, And there shall be earthquakes in places, and there shall be hunger and disturbances. These are the beginning of childbirth-like pains. And finally, Luke chapter 21, verse 11, And there will be mighty earthquakes in places, and hunger, and pestilence, and fearful sights and wonders in the sky. They will be exceedingly great. Jesus declares that there will be earthquakes, as well as hunger and disturbances. These disturbances could be likened to civil unrest or uprisings. That sounds like yesterday's news, like for the literal last million yesterdays. At the end of both the Matthew and Mark passages, a word that translates as sorrow or pain is used. It's also been translated as birth pangs. I translate it as childbirth-like pain. The Greek word is odin. It literally means the pain of childbirth, as opposed to actual childbirth or birth pangs. Many interpreters emphasize the birth pangs portion of the verse as if to attempt to interpret this as a clue of the timing of Jesus' return. This is to say that once birth pangs start, they do not stop. They increase in intensity and get closer together up until the child is born. So, those that hold this interpretation conclude that the events Jesus is speaking of, like war, earthquakes, famine, etc., will increase in intensity and frequency once they have started, right up until Jesus returns. They also say that once they start, we are in the end times, and they will not end until Jesus returns. There's at least two things to consider in regard to the birth pains interpretation. First, Jesus is saying that the trouble will be painful at a level that can be likened to birth pains. Since the Greek word udin refers to a type of pain and not the event of childbirth itself, there's really no reason to think that the similarities between childbirth and the events Jesus is describing go beyond the pain comparison. From what I understand, childbirth is at the top of the list of contenders for causing the worst pain a human can experience. This comparison makes sense considering the emotional equivalent of a loved one's death from wars, earthquakes, and famines. Those who have lost their loved ones in a tragic way like that can relate. The second thing to consider is that even if the birth pangs comparison is meant to convey that the events Jesus is referring to will increase in intensity and frequency, like childbirth, we have no point of reference for when they may have started, or even if they have started. How would we know if they have started? These types of things that Jesus is referring to, like wars and famines and earthquake and pestilence, have always occurred. One thing childbirth-like pains accomplish is to cause one to pay attention and be watchful of developments. You know the birth is going to take place. Will your new baby arrive in an hour or two days? Or maybe it's false labor? I believe the point Jesus is trying to make here is not only that there will be a pain associated with the time preceding his coming, but that his followers of all times must stay awake and pay attention. About once or twice a year in regards to earthquakes, the mainstream media picks up on the, quote, we're set to have a big one, unquote, theme. In fact, I just saw that story on the news this morning. They talk about all the fault lines and building pressure of the earth's tectonic plates as they interview various geologists and seismologists. Then the modern-day doomsdayers break out their maps showing what the new west coast of the United States is going to look like after the big one. Montana will have prime coastline property according to these maps. Modern governments appear to love to use this as a reason to justify improving buildings and infrastructure. In his book Apocalypse Code, one of the best-known pop Christian culture end-times authors Hal Lindsey, implies that we are near the end of the age because of earthquakes when he cites, quote, experts, unquote, that say the frequency of earthquakes are increasing. Are we really seeing a trend today of more earthquakes? I began seriously watching earthquakes data almost 25 years ago. During one check of the U.S. Geological website in 1997, I recorded that the Mammoth Lake area in California experienced 944 quakes, up to a magnitude of 3.8 in one weekend. In December of 2005, I recorded 21 earthquakes ranging from magnitude 2.7 to 6.1 throughout the world in a 24-hour period. When I checked in August of 2015, I recorded that there had been about 28 earthquakes over a magnitude 2.5 in the preceding 24 hours. Three more than in 2005, but less intense. And when I just checked a few minutes ago, the number of earthquakes in the past 24 hours was 43. That's quite a few more than six years ago in a 24-hour period. I'm going to keep an eye on that, but I'm guessing the average will remain about the same as it has been. If you look at graphs for the past few decades, you'll see how some years there are more and others there are less, but there's been no steady or sudden trend up where they've ever stayed up in numbers. Check out the USGS website if you want to keep an eye on what some call birth pangs yourself. It seems we are having a lot of earthquakes these days, but contrary to Mr. Lindsay's claims, at this point, Earthquakes have not consistently increased. Only our awareness and the media's sensationalism of earthquakes has increased. Here's the answer to a frequently asked question found on the National Geological Survey's website. The question, why are we having so many earthquakes? Has earthquake activity been increasing? The official answer, although it may seem that we are having more earthquakes, Earthquakes of magnitude 7.0 or greater have remained fairly constant throughout this century and, according to our records, have actually seemed to decrease in recent years. The earthquakes we're experiencing can easily qualify for what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24. Earthquakes in various places. Because they can be terrifying events, Jesus knew that there would be those people around the world who would say that earthquakes mean that the end is near. He was warning us against that deceptive teaching. It turns out Jesus was spot on. End times watchers point to earthquakes all the time as an indicator that the end is near. Science and historical data tells us that many of the modern-day prophecy teachers are giving us alarming and wrong information. There are several catastrophic earthquakes specifically mentioned in the book of Revelation. In the course of natural events, there may be many more sizable quakes before the quakes mentioned in Revelation take place. The last thing I'll say for now on earthquakes is that Unless we experience a worldwide earthquake like Revelation chapter 6 verses 12 to 14 is talking about, in which, quote, every mountain and island is removed from its place, unquote, it's just another day in history on planet Earth and not the end. However, if we do experience such an earthquake, look up because Jesus is coming really, really soon afterwards. That's what I call a hard sign. Jesus also speaks of famines and pestilence in the Olivet Discourse. In the Matthew and Mark accounts of the Discourse, some translations of the Bible don't include the word which is translated as pestilence to the list. This is because some of the ancient documents used in our modern translations of the Bible include the word for pestilence or disease, and others do not. The word for disease or pestilence is included in the Luke passage, so it's safe to include it in our list of things that caused the childbirth-like pain of which Jesus spoke. If you want to know more about the complicated word study details of this, you can read about it in the book. The Greek word for famine can also be translated as hunger, which is typically a direct result of famine. Instead of saying famine and pestilence, one could easily translate these things as hunger and disease. Of course, as I record this, we're still in the middle of the worldwide coronavirus pandemic. But, again, although our response to such a thing may have been different this time, we have been here before. Shortages of food due to the environment and pestilence or disease are nothing new to the planet. Just listen to this short list. In 430 BC, an unknown agent killed a quarter of the Athenian troops and a quarter of the population over four years during the Peloponnesian War. During the Antonine Plague of 165 to 180 AD, an estimated 5 million people died, with as many as 5,000 people a day dying in Rome alone. That's only half as many as the Plague of Justinian, which started in 541 AD, That plague killed up to 10,000 people per day. In the end, up to a quarter of the human population of the eastern Mediterranean region perished. The Black Death Plague began in 1348. It killed 20 million Europeans in six years' time, up to half the population in some areas. Cholera has wiped out millions of people over the years across China, India, Russia, Europe, and has even reached North America. The Spanish flu killed 25 million people across the world in only six months in 1918 and 1919. Some estimates are twice that high. I'll never forget my time as a deputy sheriff overseeing an inmate work crew, which was cleaning up a cemetery and noticing how many grave markers of children there were from 1918 and 1919. In the 1950s and 60s, the Asian and Hong Kong flu epidemics wiped out over 100,000 people. These viruses still circulate today. Unlike earthquakes, there is some indication in the book of Revelation that very near to the return of Jesus, famine and pestilence will dramatically increase relative to the norm as Jesus breaks seals on a scroll in heaven. You can find out more about that in Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Once the seal related to pestilence is loosed by Jesus, it triggers a quarter of the earth being subjected to severe famine and pestilence. But that's a discussion for another day. Even with famine and disease playing a part, we've been clearly warned that looking at disease and famine as signs of the end of the age by themselves is not reliable. The Black Death Plague like I just said, wiped out about a third of Europe's population in the mid-14th century, and Jesus did not return. The Luke account of the Olivet Discourse uniquely states that along with famines, earthquakes, wars, and such, will be fearful signs in the heavens. Later in the Discourse, Jesus will inform the disciples of specific signs in the heavens that will, in fact, be associated with His return. These same signs are also foretold of in Old Testament books like Joel and in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. That specific set of signs in the heavens is one of the hard signs that will be unique to the end of this age. However, here, Jesus is still warning about those things that in general have been going on for thousands of years and are not unique to the return of Christ. There are signs in the heavens all the time. Solar eclipses, blood moons, and comets have been frightening the inhabitants of the earth since the beginning of time. Earthquakes, wars, civil disturbances, false prophets, famines, pestilence, and astronomical phenomenon have always been around. They are with us now and always will be. These things, by virtue of being woven into our fabric of our past and present reality, will also play a part in the coming of the end of the age. Understanding history is an essential part of our ability to understanding Bible prophecy. Some of these things will even increase just prior to the return of Jesus. However, since these events all cause calamity and pain on a relative and subjective scale, we can't rely on earthquake, disease, famine, and normal astronomical phenomenon as hard signals that the return of Jesus will take place soon that's the essence of what Jesus is warning us about. With his first two warnings out of the way regarding things that will affect humankind on the earth, Jesus next warns his disciples of something to come that's much more personal. That is, the persecution his followers are promised to suffer simply for being his followers. That's where we'll pick it up in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.